This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and managing editor of the Business of Government magazine. NASA leads the nation on a great journey of discovery, seeking new knowledge and understanding of our sun, earth, solar system, and the universe, out to its farthest reaches and back to its earliest moments of existence. To do this, it invests on the order of $3 billion annually in fundamental and applied research and technology development across a broad range of topics, including space, and earth sciences, life and physical sciences, human health, aeronautics, and technology. From space, in space, and about space, NASA's science vision encompasses questions as practical as hurricane formation, as enticing as the prospect of a lunar resources, and as profound as the origin of the universe. To ensure the success of the space program through generations to come, we must have simple but compelling long-term goals and a coherent, thoughtful plan. What are NASA's key science priorities? What is NASA doing to promote science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, or STEM education? And when will we have definitive evidence of life outside of Earth? We will explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Dr. Ellen Stofan, NASA's chief scientist. Ellen, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So I'd like to get some context. Would you outline the mission and uh, purpose of NASA's Office of uh, Chief Scientist? What prompted its creation and how has it evolved to date? Well, it's an interesting office because it's sort of come and gone over the history of the agency. And really, my primary function is to advise the NASA administrator on science policy across the agency. We have an associate administrator for science whose responsibility it is to administer our program budgets. So if it's a mission to Mars or an Earth science mission, the associate administrator for space science is really in charge of of that. I'm really looking at broad-scale science policy across the agency, across our multiple directorates. That's human exploration, technology, science, and aeronautics, and giving the administrator kind of a big-picture point of view. So the position comes and goes, whether the administrator wants that kind of advice or or, or doesn't. Um, but really, the main focus is: can we, can my office provide the administrator with this sort of broad, broad point of view? So, uh, Ellen, uh, given your role as uh, NASA's chief scientist, do you work uh, very closely with the associate administrator uh, of the science directorate? Yes, right now we have an acting associate yeah, administ- administrator, and I, I work very closely with him, really thinking about what he's doing, policy, how the missions are going, the big decisions he's having to make. Um, so I meet with him very regularly. I also work extremely closely with the 
associate administrator for human exploration, uh, Bill Gerstenmeier, uh, because we are very tightly tied in, again, with the research that we're doing on the International Space Station, but also on NASA's journey to send humans to Mars in the 2030s. So my office is quite involved in that. And, and being so quite involved, I'd like to get it. You kind of hinted at it, but what, what are your responsibilities and duties? And, and, and really, maybe you, what's a day? Let's, let's put it this way. What's a day or a week in the life of NASA's chief scientist? You know, I often think I have the best job in the world because my days are so incredibly varied. So I might I might start out going to a meeting, hearing about our latest accomplishment with one of our pro, my favorite programs, Servere, which is a joint project between USAID and NASA to help uh, countries around the world get access to NASA Earth science data. So I might have a meeting about that. I might then have a meeting on diversity and inclusion. How are we doing at NASA um, in terms of making sure we have a diverse and inclusive workforce, but then how are we also making sure that promulgates outward, for example, to agent, you know, institutions we give grants to. Then I might have a meeting over at the Office of Science and Technology Policy. I sit on a number of committees through the National Science and Technology Council, including, for example, the um, Interagency Arctic Research Panel. I sit on a Deputies Ocean Council. I sit on um, a Physical Science Subcommittee. Uh, so I'm quite involved doing cross-agency um, type activities, which are really interesting. Um, then I might, you know, have a briefing with staff on Capitol Hill. I might have a meeting with members of the science community who want to come in and talk about a specific issue or an area of research. And then we might have a budget meeting. It is Washington after all. <laughs> it is Washington after all. So speaking of Washington after all, what are your top, say, I don't know, management challenges or organizational challenges that you face? And how have, how have you sought to address those challenges? You know, I think for NASA, every day we're, we're trying to turn science fiction into science fact. So if you if you say that's our, you know, that's our top challenge is we want to send humans to Mars in the 2030s, you know, and that's that's a big challenge. How do you take an agency of over 17,000 civil servants, you know, nine NASA centers and one FFRDC spread all across the country? Um, how do you move everybody forward and make sure that we're all in sync? And, you know, we probably have twice that many contractors working for us. So we're a, we're a big agency and we're trying to do really tough things. And, you know, we work hard every day to make sure we're using the taxpayer dollars to the maximum we can get out of them to make sure that we move this agency forward and keep us as a leader um, in in exploration, in discovery, in science. So what has surprised you most since taking this role? You know, I, I think one of the things that's probably surprised me most, which is really not a silly thing, you know, NASA for the last four or five years has been um, voted the best place to work um, in, in the federal government. And the dedication of everybody that I run into um, at the agency who we might not always agree on an implementation path, but I have never questioned anybody's motivation. Everybody is passionate about NASA's mission, exploration, discovery, understanding this planet, understanding our solar system. And I, I think what's amazed me is the degree I've, you know, I grew up at NASA, and so I'm incredibly passionate about the agency, but it's been incredibly refreshing just to see that in every single person I work with. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned uh, you grew up, it runs in your family, so to speak, NASA. So I'd like to know a little bit more about you and your career path. Uh, what brought you to your current leadership role? Well, you know, when I was uh, going way, way back, uh, I went to my uh, first rocket launch when I was four years old uh, yeah, right. because my dad really was a rocket engineer. Uh, he worked at NASA's um, 
uh, now Glenn Research Center. At that point, it was the Lewis Research Center in Cleveland. And he worked on launch vehicles. And so I went down there for a rocket launch. And the rocket actually blew up on the pad, which is probably why I never wanted to be an astronaut. But, you know, to me, NASA was just always something, you know, when I was a kid, I was defending why NASA, we should be spent sending people to the moon and why it was important to spend money on science and technology when I was about 10 years old. Um, but I was also one of those kids who picked up rocks and seashells, and I loved the outside world. And at some point when I was about 10, I think my mother was taking a geology class, and I, I went along on the trip, and I was like, wow, people get paid for picking up rocks for a living. But to be honest with you, what fascinated the most is we're walking down the stream bed, and this geology professor could read the history of the earth by looking at these layers of rocks. And I just thought that was amazing that you could read landscapes and get history and, and information out of them. Um, and so I thought, okay, I want to be a geologist, even though I had never known that was a thing before. Um, and then when I was about 14, my father was in charge of the launch vehicles that launched the Viking landers, which were the first two uh, U.S. landers on Mars. Um, they launched in 1975 to date myself. And we went down to the launch because my father was working on it. Um, and they had presentations by the mission scientists um, to explain why we were exploring Mars to understand this red planet with water flowing across the surface in its past where maybe at one point there was life. And this guy named Carl Sagan was talking about why we explore Mars. And I thought, OK, I'm sold. That's it. And so I got a Ph.D. in planetary geology. I studied uh, the surface of Venus primarily for my Ph.D., um, Worked on a number of NASA missions, uh, mission to Venus. I'm on the Cassini mission that's studying Saturn right now. And I worked on uh, an instrument that flew twice on the shuttle in 1994. And at some point, they called me and said, do you want to interview to be chief scientist of NASA? And I thought, okay, I'll, I'll try that. I had to Google that to figure out what, what, on, what on earth <laughs> does the chief scientist of NASA do. And it sounded great. And so I, that's what I've done. You mentioned in your challenge, the challenge that you talked about was getting something. NASA was such an important, varied mission uh, with so many people going in that, uh, trying to achieve that mission. It's, uh, it takes leadership. And where I want to go with this question is, given your background, your current role, what makes an effective leader? And perhaps you could illustrate some of your, some of the leaders that have influenced you and how you've put some of those principles into practice. Well, I've had a number of um, leadership roles in my career. I was, uh, um, I ran a science team and its budget for the shuttle instrument I was talking about. And, and probably my biggest leadership role, I actually put together a proposal that I worked on for about five years to send a boat to a sea uh, on Titan, which is one of Saturn's moons. And so we worked for about five years on this proposal. We made it through an initial NASA round, and then we eventually lost to another NASA mission that got selected. Um, and so leading a team of people trying to do something really hard, sending a floating probe to a sea on a very distant moon, sort of taught me a lot about leadership styles. But even more than that, it really was working with really great leaders. Um, Steve Saunders, who was a project scientist on the Magellan mission to Venus that I worked on very early, to me taught me one of the most important lessons, which is is listening. As a leader, I think you always have to really listen to what people around you say and understand what the situation is and understand what's motivating them. And he was really, really good at that. My biggest um, admiration right now is solely for Charlie Bolden, um, our NASA administrator, 
who I think really exemplifies being a great leader. He's extremely passionate about the agency, about its mission. He has a very clear vision, uh, which I think leaders have to have, of where he thinks the agency should go. And then he's able to communicate that vision, which I think is another important aspect of, of leadership is really that communication piece. Can you let the people um, who are helping you achieve those goals, can you communicate to them and get them on board with you? And then can you communicate that message to your stakeholders so upward and outward so that they support you? And Charlie's great at that. What are NASA's key science priorities? We will ask its chief scientist, Dr. Ellen Stofan, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. The latest edition of the Business of Government magazine delves into a diverse set of topics and public management issues facing us today. Hi, I'm Michael Keegan, the editor of the Business of Government magazine, and with each edition I present the leadership stories of a select group of public servants and complement their frontline experience with practical insights from thought leaders, merging real-world experience with practical scholarship. Check out the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine and find out. Download or order a free copy at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Dr. Ellen Stofan, NASA's chief scientist. You know, you, you point out that uh, the mission of NASA pushes the boundaries of our knowledge about Earth, the solar system, including our sun and the universe. Uh, to that end, would you outline some of the short-term or longer-term strategic priorities for NASA in the science area? Sure. When you look at our our sort of five areas uh, of science that we have right now, um, starting with heliophysics, which is the study of our sun, um, and and right now there's a real real focus with this administration, with NASA, with NOAA, um, our partner agencies across the federal government, on space weather because we've really realized that that um, these charged particles that come out from the sun, from solar flares, and from really big explosions on the surface of the sun called coronal mass ejections, um, that these have a big impact on the Earth. Um, and, and for NASA, they don't even have a big Im- just an impact on the Earth. They have an impact on everything orbiting the Earth, which, of course, for us includes our astronauts up on the International Space Station. And eventually, those... Uh, waves of particles, which are highly charged, it's basically radiation, would affect astronauts who are outside of Earth's magnetic field, so say in a habitat around the moon or on their way to Mars. So understanding the sun and understanding its effect on our near space environment, so around the Earth and between us and the, and Mars, is is a really critical goal right now for the, for the agency. And again, NASA is just one small part of this whole space weather uh, enterprise. For our solar system, you know, we're doing amazing things. We recently launched a mission to return a sample from an asteroid called OSIRIS-REx. Uh, and it's an inc- it'll be the first time we've returned samples since basically the 1970s in the Apollo mission. So we're really excited about having rocks coming back from another body. Unfortunately, they won't get here until 2023. Uh, we're also, we have a spacecraft called Ju- uh, Juno that's at Jupiter that just got there this past summer. And, of course, we have New Horizons um, continuing to push out into the Kuiper Belt. So as we move outward across our solar system with all these spacecraft, we're really always focusing back on trying to answer some really fundamental questions. Where did the Earth come from? How did we get to an habitable environment on Earth? And 
what's the potential in the future for this planet? So things like worrying about an asteroid possibly hitting the Earth in in the future, worried about a coronal mass ejection which might come towards the Earth. So what are the hazards to our planet? And the only way we can answer those questions about sort of the past, present, and future of Earth is really to understand our neighborhood, our solar system. With our big telescopes from Kepler to James Webb, we're really asking these basic questions about the origin of the universe. What's the matter that makes up the universe? How does the universe behave? And then how does that link back to Earth? And of course, one of our chief questions there are extrasolar planets and the huge number of extrasolar planets. And again, always back to this question of are we alone? And is there life beyond Earth? On the International Space Station, we're answering questions every day scientifically to try to understand how do we get humans to Mars safely. And a lot of that revolves right now around human health. Can we keep astronauts healthy in microgravity for extended periods of time? It's about seven to eight months to Mars, so seven to eight months there, seven to eight months back. That's a lot of time in microgravity. Scott Kelly was just up on the ISS for about a year, um, and we learned an awful lot from that. So we spend a lot of time saying... Are there mitigations to the health effects that do occur? For example, right now we know if the astronauts exercise for about an hour and a half every day, they'll come back with about the same bone density and muscle mass as they left with. But that's a lot of exercise every day. And we have big equipment on the ISS. How can we miniaturize that um, for the transit vehicle that will take astronauts to Mars? So lots of research on the ISS right now. And then it's always back to this planet. With our over 19 missions studying this planet right now, How is our planet changing? And how do we need to gather uh, data that, to me, exclusively used to pretty much just be used by the scientific community? How can we change that into information that farmers can use to make decisions about how much to water their crops, um, that local coastal planners can use to understand how bad is the next storm surge going to be, what are the effects of sea level rise on my community? Uh, and so we have all this sort of science data trying to understand our changing planet um, and and how to mitigate some of those effects of climate change. So what are some of the key internal or external drivers and trends that have helped shape this uh, the science strategy for NASA at a, at a high level? You know, at the highest level, of course, we rely on the National Academy of Sciences um, who do what are called decadal surveys. So all those different areas of science I just talked about We rely on the National Academy of Sciences to do kind of a 10-year, again, they're called decadal surveys. So they do sort of a 10-year strategic plan. And we rely on the scientific community for that because they then reach out to the entire scientific community and really get a consensus on what are the big questions? What are the measurements? What are the, you know, key technologies? And so we do. We really look into where are the emerging technologies. Some of the exciting trends right now, I think, all revolve around small sats. Um, you've probably heard of CubeSats, these little tiny satellites that we're putting out that are becoming more and more capable. From a scientific point of view, that's really exciting because the smaller you get something, the less mass. And in, in the space business, mass turns into cost because every pound you're launching or every kilogram you're launching off the surface of this planet costs money. So the more we can shrink our satellites, make them more capable, the more science data we're going to get in the long run. And so I think that's a big trend that everybody in the space business is really excited about. And then, of course, there's the issue that we have a lot of new players coming into the space business. And in general, when you have more competition 
everybody benefits in the end. Can we talk about a specific area? I think it might be under the Earth Sciences portfolio, but I'd like to get your perspective as the chief scientist around um, improving weather prediction. And where I'm going is, what is NASA doing to study weather modeling and predictions? And you did mention an effort that is uh, true to your heart, which is the relation, the collaboration between NASA and USAID around environmental monitoring. So what can you tell us about what's going on in that area? We work extremely closely with NOAA. They're, they're really one of our key partner agencies. In fact, in November, we'll be launching a spacecraft called GOZAR, which um, our Goddard Space Flight Center in Maryland has been um, building for NOAA. So it's NOAA satellite, but we've been building it. So very close partnership. NASA does a lot of the fundamental research on trying to understand the you know what's forcing weather, why is weather changing, what is how does that relate? And if you think of weather as being the day to day and climate being the long term, we think mostly about climate, but then obviously climate feeds into weather. And so we work very closely, and we actually have a joint center with NOAA that works on how do you take basic research information and feed that into the operational process, which is a huge operational process that NOAA is responsible for, for weather forecasting, and they do an amazing job at it. And so our role is just, we're doing some of the latest cutting-edge research. Then when you think, okay, we know our climate is changing, we understand what's causing it, uh, we see the effects of climate change every day, whether it's drought in California, whether it's the loss of sea ice in the Arctic, loss of ice uh, in Greenland from the West Antarctic, Again, contributing to sea level rise. You know, some areas are getting too much rain. Some areas are getting too little rain. And this is happening everywhere around the globe. Now, the data we're gathering allow us to model that out into the future and say, okay, if emissions don't change or if emissions scenarios where, for example, everybody follows the Paris Accords and we get the emissions to come down, how is that going to affect weather 20 years from now, precipitation 30 years from now? So what NASA's been doing is working across the science community, working across the federal agency community and saying, how can we get the best data together possible so that decision makers can cope with the fact that some effects of climate change are going to happen no matter what we do? And then we partnered with USAID because you can say, all right, there's all this data, but we're really talking big data here, a lot of data, not necessarily easy to use not necessarily easy to find. You know, how does somebody, if they are saying, my country is suffering from landslides and I have vulnerable coastlines, do they know where to go to get the best data? So with USAID, we set up this program called SERVIR, literally from the Spanish verb to serve. We have offices in Niger, in Thailand, uh, in Kenya, uh, and in Kathmandu. And those are regional offices. So what we do is we go into that region we find out what are your concerns. Are they concerns with drought, um, too much rain, uh, landslides, you know, any kind of natural hazard? And then we work with Department of Interiors in that country, universities in that country to help them understand what earth science data is available and how to use it. And we work very closely with partner agencies in that country. And it's just one of my favorite programs because it really is, we call it from space to village. So it really is. How can we make this data we collect, again, you know, with the original intent of having it be mostly for the scientific community, how can we now turn that into actionable information to help countries around the world become more resilient to the effects of climate change? Interesting. So, you know, one of the, th the terms I came across um, 
while prepping for our conversation was comparative climatology. And I want you to talk about that. What is it? And how can, which I found this very interesting, how can exploring other worlds contribute to our understanding and protection of this planet? So I think for most people on this planet, you know, when they think of climate, they think of the Earth. Uh, and we do have an incredibly complex climate because we've got, obviously, the effects of climate uh, or the effects of the sun on our atmosphere. The atmosphere is interacting with the ocean surface, the land surface, vegetation. So it's a complex thing to model because you've got all these systems that are interacting together. But, you know, we're not the only planet with an atmosphere. So we've got Venus, where it's actually 900 degrees Fahrenheit on the surface because they have a dominantly CO2 atmosphere. We have Mars, which has a very thin atmosphere. It's very cold on the surface. We've got Titan, this moon of, of Saturn that I, I wanted to send a boat to. It's got a dominantly nitrogen atmosphere. It's got methane in its atmosphere also, which is a very powerful greenhouse gas. So I often have a lot of people say to me, how do you really understand the effects of CO2 on an atmosphere? And I say, well, one of the strong reasons is because we're not just looking at one planet. We've got Venus, we've got Mars, we've got the Earth, we've got Titan. We have lots of different climates that we can compare, that we can model, that we can test our models on. If it works, you know, on one planet, you should be able to port that model to another planet and put in the different variables. Usually when you do that, the model breaks because there's some factor you're not getting quite right. And that's how part of the reason we've been able to hone our climate models to the degree we have because we have more than one planet to work with. So I think it's made our understanding of the Earth, again, which is the most complex planet that we, we have because of the biosphere, because of all these interacting systems, we have these simpler planets to compare it to. And it's really made us feel very confident that we understand that our climate is changing and we understand what's causing it. So shifting gears a little bit, you mentioned earlier the International Space Station. And I'd like to talk about some of the key research being done being performed there. Um, what research is being done in the areas of the effects of microgravity on human physiology? And how is it enhancing our understanding of the Martian surface? So it can, so when we go to Mars, we'll have a better sense of what we need to bring and how we need to live. It turns out that our bodies, because we obviously evolved on this planet with our the amount of gravity that we have, our 1G of gravity, because we're this uh, medium-sized planet, our bodies are actually exquisitely attuned to living here. And so when you take us out of this environment, our bodies actually don't work quite right. We lose immune system function. Uh, as I said earlier, our bone density drops, our muscles waste, because I like to think of it, me who's always trying to get out of exercising, um, just sitting here in a chair when I stand up, I'm exercising because I'm fighting against the force of gravity. When you're up on the space station, no gravity, your body is getting zero exercise. And we are increasingly understanding how important exercise is to us. Your cardiovascular system doesn't work quite right. We have astronauts develop um, uh, eye issues, uh, vision issues, because of increased pressure on the optic nerve. And we're still not quite sure what's causing it. There was an idea that increased intracranial pressure because you have fluid migration to your head, that that was putting pressure on the optic nerve. We're not really sure if that's the cause. It could be related to high CO2, uh, carbon dioxide in the, in the ISS. We're not sure what's causing it. But anyway, we have a whole list of, of human health risks. One of the chief ones that I sort of touched on earlier is actually radiation. And that's when we move astronauts outside of the Earth's magnetic field, they're going to be subjected to a, a 
a lot of radiation, not just from the sun, which we're pretty good at shielding against, but also from cosmic radiation, which comes in at very um, it's galactic cosmic rays. They're traveling at very high rates. It's very difficult to shield against. So we look at this broad spectrum of human health risks, and we actually have this great chart where we've got them all laid out, and we say, how are we going to use the space station over the next number of years? It's been extended to 2024. How are we going to work over these years to do the research we need to do um, to put in place mitigation so that when astronauts get to Mars, they'll be healthy? Because after seven or eight months, you go to land on the surface of Mars, you've, you've got to be ready to, ready to work. You've got to be ready to cope with an emergency if one occurs. So we've got to do the research that we need to do up there to make sure humans are healthy. The side benefit of this is we're learning more about the human body. Um, as we age, as, as I find out every day, um, y- your body doesn't work quite right. And, and, for example, bone density loss and muscle wasting are actually occurring in you and every all of us as we age. So some of the mitigations we're developing up on the space station are actually benefiting human health uh, right here on in space. And what we've also realized is all these changes I was talking about, in a lot of cases, the lack of gravity is actually causing genes to switch on and off. And that's helping us ultimately, we hope, to again understand the human body, how it works, and help human health right here on Earth. I may have, I just wanted to follow up because you mentioned the Kelly experiment. And have, have you guys released all the information that you've found? Is it going to be, or is it something that's not going to be uh, shared? For those who don't know, over the last year we did an, uh, we had an astronaut that I mentioned, Scott Kelly, who was up on the International Space Station for about a year. It just happens that he has a twin brother who used to be an astronaut, Mark Kelly, uh, who's married to Gabby Giffords. And Mark very generously agreed to participate in a number of specific investigations. So we had about 10 different investigations. And obviously, as private citizens, they're entitled to privacy with their health data. But they have both very generously agreed to cooperate with the science uh, scientists on this. Um, the data right now are still being analyzed, and also because part of the experiment was you want to see how somebody recovers post-flight. Um, so we have three-month and six-month, then they've got to get that data. So we anticipate the results will be coming out late fall, spring, um, once the scientists actually get to look at all the data together and kind of see the scope of, of what they've learned. But it was so fascinating being able to have a, a twin study because I said a lot of these changes are taking place at the at the genetic level. And so, for example, one of the studies with Scott and Mark uh, involved this eye issue, this um, sight issue that we're still pretty confused about, about exactly what's causing it. One of them, which I found particularly interesting, was, you know, all of us carry around in our, our gut a whole particular set of microflora, our own little microbiome. And so one of the experiments was looking at sort of the changes in time of Mark's microbiome versus how much Scott's changed in microgravity. So a number of fascinating different investigations. If people are interested, you can definitely find um, what all 10 investigations were for the twin study are are detailed on the web. And again, we anticipate the results to be coming out sometime this winter. Astrophysics. Uh, I want to talk about that a little bit, what NASA is doing. And what are some of the key scientific priorities in this area? And are there any recent significant findings or discoveries? Well, uh, certainly in astrophysics, I, I, I think there's been 
two really big um, uh, discoveries recently. The one I will say is um, it, it has been going on over the last several years, and that's been with our Kepler Space Telescope, where in a very small area of the night sky, if you went out and put up you know, your thumb and, and blocked out an area of the sky, you'd be blocking out about the area of the, the sky that Kepler has been staring at. In that area of the sky, it's found over 2,200 planets around other stars. So what that's telling us is just about every star in our galaxy has a planetary system around it. Not just one planet, but multiple planets. So again, now back to that life question, all of a sudden the likelihood of there being a habitable planet around another star seems a little bit more likely. So that this whole issue of extrasolar planets, how can we understand their evolution, their implications potentially for life? And we're following that up with uh, the James Webb Space Telescope, which will launch in 2018, which will start studying some of the atmospheres of these planets around other stars. Obviously, one of the big um, other areas of excitement in just this past year has been the detection of gravity waves. Um, now, that research was mostly all done through the National Science Foundation, another um, U.S. agency that we work extremely closely with. Uh, NASA participated in a mission called LISA Pathfinder, which is a joint mission with the Europeans, uh, where we've been testing some technology to detect gravity waves very accurately in space. And obviously, these things are produced when you have things like colliding black holes. Mm -hmm. So obviously, we're interested in gravity waves and what they're telling us about the behavior of the universe, but we're also interested in how can we use them? Because when you think of it, we use the different parts of the ele electromagnetic spectrum, radio waves, light wave, you know, visible light waves, radio, radar, all these different parts of the electromagnetic spectrum give us, they're like different types of eyes that give you different information when you look out at a planet, at a galaxy, out into the universe. So gravity waves are another potential way for us to gain information that we've just never had before. So this is a whole area that we're just really starting to get excited about because of this is such a new and exciting discovery. What is NASA doing to promote STEM education? We will ask its chief scientist, Dr. Ellen Stofan, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. What is the U.S. Coast Guard's strategic direction? How is the U.S. Coast Guard modernizing to be ready for today and prepared for tomorrow? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and more with Admiral Paul Zakunft, Commandant United States Coast Guard. Tune in on Mondays at 11 a.m. for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Dr. Ellen Stofan, NASA's chief scientist. So, um, Ellen, you mentioned in the previous segment that um, you mentioned the recent findings of Kepler, the telescope, and, and you also referenced the James Webb Space Telescope. I was wondering if you had any—I really would like to delve deeper into the Kepler uh, experience. What are the implications of the findings that, of its work? Well, if you go back to this question of, of are we alone, there's a very famous uh, equation called the Drake equation that looks at the potential, um, you know, Frank Drake sort of looked at, can I, can I kind of try to quantify the likelihood of there being life beyond Earth? 
And one of the variables is how many planets are, are out there. And I think while we certainly knew there were billions of, of stars in our galaxy and many, many billions of stars in the universe, and we certainly suspected that many of them would have planets around them, we didn't know that until Kepler. And to me, that's why Kepler has been, you know, because you can have, um, you can have a hypothesis, but until you have evidence... Um, you know, you're, you're not really sure. And what Kepler has really told us is how common planets are. And the fact that they're so common and the fact that Kepler has been able to detect three planet systems, five planet systems, seven planet systems. And Kepler also has had the ability to detect planets between the size of Earth and Neptune. It had much higher resolution. Previously, we'd only been able to detect more planets the size of Jupiter or Saturn, so very large planets, which are likely to be gas giants, not likely to be habitable. But Kepler took us into that sort of habitable planet range, and it has found huge numbers of planets in that size category. That's another thing. We, we had no idea if that were the case. How common are Earth-sized planets? Um, and we think that's important because of reasons of a, big, a planet being big enough to hold an atmosphere, and you need a substantial atmosphere, we think, to have life because life needs, a, it needs to breathe or it needs to... Um, have those processes. So we think you need an atmosphere uh, if you are going to have life on the surface. Um, so that's why the size is important. And also for the composition, you want it to have brought in lots of different materials so that life has the possibility to access lots of different chemical systems. And so Kepler, I think, has really just revolutionized our views on on the potential for there being habitable planets out there. And so when does the James Webb Space Telescope start? And what's the mission? What is it operational? And uh, what do you hope to gather from that effort? James Webb will launch in 2018. Um, and, you know, after a several-month checkout, it, it'll be ready to start taking data. And we're incredibly excited about it. It's sort of the next great observatory following on from Hubble. Uh, and it, it's in a different wavelength range. In the case of um, J James Webb, it's an infrared um, telescope. Uh, Hubble is a visible near-infrared. James Webb has a more extended range. So, again, it's giving you that different pair of eyes to get different information about, about the uh, galaxy and about the universe. Um, and it'll even look at planets in our own solar system. And James Webb has a number of different focuses. It's really looking, for example, it can actually look much deeper into space. And that's critical because the deeper you look into space, the deeper in time you are looking because the light takes so long to come from its point of origin to the telescope that in this case, we're going to actually be looking at basically um, just tens of millions of years after the Big Bang, which is much further back in time than we've ever been able to see before with a telescope. Um, and so to understand what was happening in our very young universe is going to be really amazing. That's just one of the things James <laughs> Webb can do. It can also look at the atmospheres of some of these extrasolar planets. So we can start asking the question, do these, some of these planets around other stars, do they have oxygen, carbon dioxide, carbon dioxide methane, um, water, these gases that here on Earth are associated with life? Do we see those gases and atmospheres around of uh, planets around other stars? That's not proof that they're inhabited, but it's indicating they are potentially habitable. So, you know, we talk about Mars, I think uh, 2030 may have been the date that was given. Or So the Mars Exploration Program, 
Could you tell us more about that? What's going on? What's next in this area? Are, are we on schedule? What are some of the challenges being faced? You know, you have to think when you're trying to do something as difficult as get humans to Mars in the 2030s, it's a problem you really have to break into different phases and saying, what, which problem do I need to attack first? And, and how do I do this in a way that is spurring economic innovation, you know, supporting NASA's mission and really moving the country forward? So when we look at it, we say, all right, the first thing we have to do and the, you know, job one is to make sure that we can get humans there safely and healthy. And so that's why the International Space Station is so critical, because it's that research we're doing every day on the International Space Station, buying down those those human health risks. And we think by the mid-2020s, we'll be ready to go. So at that point, what we're going to be doing is moving humans out to the vicinity of the moon. Now, why not go straight to Mars at that point? You know, if you're at the moon, you can make it home in three or four days. For example, we're going to put a what we call a cislunar habitat. So we're basically going to build the prototype of the Mars transfer vehicle. So what will get humans from the Earth to the Mars system. And we're going to put it in orbit out around the moon. Because, again, we want to make sure its systems work. Do its life support systems work? Are they reliable? If things break, do we know how to fix them without having to constantly resupply from the Earth? Let's go practice that in the vicinity of the moon before we're ready to take that leap to Mars. Because once you're on your way to Mars, boy, you're on your way to Mars. So let's practice at the moon and then move on to Mars. Then by about 2032, we'll be ready to head out to Mars. One of the most important things we're doing right now is building a new rocket. We're building a new rocket called the Space Launch System. It'll be ready to launch in late of 2018, not with humans on board yet, but we'll test the Space Launch System and the Orion capsule, which will sit on top of it. That's what will get humans out to the vicinity of the moon. Uh, We'll send the first crewed mission up uh, around 2021. And again, that will lead towards doing this this lunar habitat in the mid-2020s. In the meantime, of course, we're also still studying Mars because we want to make sure Do we understand what it takes to land a lot of mass on the surface of Mars? Do we understand the dust on Mars, its potential? Is it potentially harmful to humans? Do we need to work on systems to keep that dust away from the humans that go to Mars? Do we know scientifically the best place to pick a human landing site? What are the astronauts going to do when we get there? So we have our robotic program of exploring Mars that's still continuing, and we're working very hard on that so that we understand when the humans get there that we can make the best use out of them as explorers, as the ones who are going to go crack open those rocks and find that evidence of past life on Mars. And you're doing, your focus, NASA's focus on Mars allows for the, uh, the cultivation of the commercial space area. I'd like to talk about it. What, what is commercial space and how has NASA changed the way it's engaging commercial space community? You know, NASA's always, since its inception, certainly worked um, with the private sector, and we've had had strong commercial partners. I, I think what's what's amazing at this point is this revolution we've been going through over the past about five or six years, where we've said, "Okay, let's start to turn over to the private sector those aspects of space exploration that NASA really doesn't need to do anymore." Um, just think with communication satellites. NASA was very involved at the beginning. We're not involved at all anymore. So how can we start moving other parts of NASA into that same category so that we can focus our dollars on doing the things that nobody else wants to do or can do? 
So, for example, right now uh, you have um, SpaceX and Orbital ATK launching cargo to the uh, International Space Station. We've just added um, Sierra Nevada Corporation. They'll also start taking cargo uh, up to the ISS. Starting in about a year, we'll have SpaceX and Boeing Corporation launching crew up to the International Space Station because we feel that those are functions that can be turned over to the private sector. Of course, we also have a really interesting partnership with uh, SpaceX in terms of they want to land a capsule on the surface of Mars in 2018 called Red Dragon. So they want to take one of their Dragon capsules and actually send it all, to, uh, all the way to Mars. We're extremely excited about that at NASA because to get humans down onto the surface of Mars, we have a lot more work to do on what we call entry, descent, and landing, or EDL. That's the toughest part. Mars has this annoying atmosphere where it's there's enough of an atmosphere there to really heat your spacecraft up as you enter the atmosphere, but it's not enough of an atmosphere to really slow you down. So, boy, do you come wailing in, and you have to do a lot of work to slow yourself down. And so our very complex system that some people might have uh, seen talked about in our seven minutes of terror video that we put out before the Curiosity landing. Curiosity weighed one metric ton, and it was pretty difficult to land on the surface of Mars. It was a real challenge. We estimate for getting humans to the surface of Mars, you're going to be landing 10, 15, 20 metric tons on the surface. So the more we can partner with SpaceX, with other private industry that wants to help us push that technological envelope of getting humans to Mars, the happier we are. So it's a, it's a great new era, I think, of, of exploration. And it's not just with the private sector. We also want to partner with our international space agencies. What are you doing to promote science, technology, engineering, and mathematics or STEM education? And would you tell us uh, about uh, NASA's critical investment in these areas? You know, to me, everything that we do, and, and Charlie Bolden, my boss, likes to say that, you know, every time we launch a rocket, every time we get a new image back from Pluto or an amazing new image from Hubble showing the deep reaches of our galaxy, you know, we're inspiring that next generation. I, I've been to schools all, all over this country and all over the world, literally. And you walk into that school and the kids are vibrating with excitement because NASA has come to talk to them. Um, and it's amazing to me uh, what a source of inspiration. You know, kids who might not think they're interested in science all of a sudden come up to you and say, I want to be an astronaut or I want to go understand how black holes work. Um, and, and so I think NASA has an important role in making sure that everybody understands that we need all hands on deck. We need to tap into the you know talent of all of our population in order to solve the tough challenges we have ahead of us, whether it's getting humans to Mars or dealing with the effects of climate change. And that's why we've been particularly proud at NASA this year when the story has come out, um, for example, about Katherine Johnson, who's one of my huge role models and who now they're making a movie about, um, who was an early mathematician at NASA who helped calculate the trajectories for the uh, Gemini and Mercury missions. What does the future hold for scientific research at NASA? We will ask NASA's chief scientist, Dr. Ellen Stofan, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. From forging a unity of effort in homeland security, to strategizing today how to feel the U.S. Army of tomorrow, to pursuing affordable housing, eliminating fraud, waste, and abuse in healthcare, and securing cyberspace, 
the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine delves into a diverse set of topics and public management issues facing us today. Hi, I'm Michael Keegan, the editor of the Business of Government magazine. And with each edition, I present the leadership stories of a select group of public servants and complement their frontline experience with practical insights from thought leaders, merging real-world experience with practical scholarship. The purpose is not to offer a definitive solution to many of the management challenges facing government executives, but to provide a resource from which to draw practical, actionable recommendations on how best to confront these issues. Check out the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine and find out. We bring you insights and interviews from government executives who are changing the way government does business. Download or order a free copy at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Dr. Ellen Stofan, NASA's chief scientist. Given the efforts surrounding NASA science, um, I think you may have said maybe a year ago or so um, something akin to this, but should we have definitive evidence of life outside of the Earth in 20 or 30 years? How will we obtain such evidence, and should we expect future missions to um, to have more instrumentation designed specifically for detecting life. Yeah, I got myself in a bit of trouble by making this prediction, but I, I actually feel extremely comfortable. You know, it was at the end of a press conference, and and the guy asked us to, Dwayne Brown asked us to speculate on when we thought we'd find life, and um, the guy next to me said, "Oh, I think we'll find it before I retire." And I <laughs> kind of looked at him and figured, "Well, he just said that. I'll say the same thing, except I'll actually put years on it." But I'm sorry to force him into retirement. But I said I thought we would find strong indications of life within ten years. Mm-hmm and definitive evidence within 20 to 30. And so what I meant by that is even right now, for example, on Mars, um, we have an instrument on Mars right now that's finding fragments of organic molecules. The problem on on Mars is it doesn't have a magnetic field, so you have incoming radiation, which basically breaks up organic molecules. So if you can think of of a surface of a planet where every once in a while you've got a little fragment Now, our tough job at the moment is to look at all these little fragments and say, are these just sort of random molecules that maybe were brought here by meteorites, or are they indications of past or or current life on Mars? And we just don't know because we don't have enough information. So we're already finding what I would say intriguing things on Mars, but it's not enough of a story to let us say this is even a strong indication of life. We're just not there yet. But... Our curiosity is still roving across Mars. The Europeans have a rover going to Mars called ExoMars that's looking for signs of life. We have a rover in 2020 called the 2020 rover that's looking for signs of life. And given that's the goal of those upcoming rovers, I'm pretty optimistic that one of them is going to find something. And that's my indication. But it's more going to be, have we found a bigger fragment have we found some gases? Have we found something? So it's not something that the whole scientific community would, yeah. you know, break open the champagne. It's People advancing. would, yeah, it's just advancing towards that. I think my big hope is that astronaut, frankly, on the surface, cracking open the rock, and frankly, with the laboratory, because it's not just going to be cracking open one rock. It's yeah. going to be breaking open a lot. It's going to be looking at a lot of samples. That's really going to get us that definitive evidence that life evolved. In the meantime, we're also uh, studying Europa, this moon of Jupiter that's got this icy crust underneath it is a liquid water ocean. 
We're sending a spacecraft there uh, in the early 2020s. We'd like to get back to Titan. It's got these mysterious seas of organic. Uh, it's very cold on Titan, no liquid water. But you've got this very interesting environment that could you get life or not? That's pushing the envelope of environments in which we think life could evolve. Another moon of Saturn called Enceladus that has, again, a subsurface liquid water ocean. Enceladus spits out that ocean in plumes that we've already flown through from Cassini. And we could go back with that more sophisticated instrumentation that you're talking about. So the big excitement for me, and again, why I felt pretty comfortable making that prediction, we know where to go. We know what to measure. In general, we have the technology to do it. It's just implementing it. So I, I think we live in incredibly exciting times. The fact that ever since there's been humans, we've been looking up at the night sky and saying, are we alone? And we live in this generation when we stand a good chance of answering that. Yeah, and it's interesting. You know, um, I don't think any of this is possible without sort of focusing on the integrity being the soul of scientific research. Uh, would you elaborate on your efforts to ensure scientific and engineering integrity at NASA? Uh, you know, like every federal agency, we have a scientific integrity policy that this administration felt very uh, strongly about making sure that every agency has a scientific integrity policy. Um, that's held on actually the web page of, of my office. We review um, that policy annually. Um, agencies across the federal government have been coming together and exchanging um, sort of lessons learned and best practices over the years that we've had these scientific integrity policies in place. So it's not just something that, you know, you write a policy and you put it on a shelf. You really have to be constantly looking at it, constantly saying, how are we doing? Because to me, the integrity of the scientific process is key. But what I put even more faith in is the peer review process, because as a scientific community, we have developed an extremely, um, you know, everybody can criticize it, but it's, to me, it's become an incredibly important part of making sure that the research that gets published, not just in this country, but around the world, is really of the highest caliber. And I would say, as a member of the scientific community, I always take reviewing a paper as being as much as my responsibility uh, as as doing my research. That and I, the entire scientific community feels that way. You understand that as we can only move science forward if your job as a scientific reviewer of a journal paper is as important as your job as a researcher. And, and I think that's the underlying integrity that throughout the scientific process is the fact that we have this peer review process that works so well um, and really keeps the literature, I think, being of extremely high quality so that we can continually be building. Um, you know, as Newton said, you know, if I've seen further, it's because I stand on the shoulder of giants. And we only are able to live in the society we do with the advances in treating disease, the, you know, your, your phones that now can do amazing things, the fact that we can feed so much of the world. All of this has relied on the fact that we have such a strong scientific process. We have this peer review process. We have uh, um, science with such high integrity, not just in this country, but as a, as a global community. So turning to the future, uh, what's in store for the NASA uh, chief scientists, what's in store for your office going forward? How do you see it evolving? And um, I don't know, is there any emerging technologies that you think are, are going to advance your efforts? Uh, you know, again, for my office, I think the important thing is to always be um, providing the administrator 
um, with just the most up-to-date critical uh, advice I can on what is the state of science, how can we move it forward, and how can looking across the agency, how can we always make sure that between all these different things we do, that we're not losing the connections between what we do. Because I think one of the emerging things that we're really seeing is some of the most interesting science, as usual, is taking place at the borders between disciplines, like climatology, for example, which really um, has to do with how a planet works, but also has to do with astrophysics, going back to this whole issue of where you sit in your distance and how a solar system evolves, which we need to understand that through astrophysics, but then also understanding uh, the complex effects of that are coming from the interior of the planet, hugely complicated. So climatology, astrobiology, the formation of life on the other planets, these are taking places between disciplines. And so I think an office, like an office of a chief scientist, has to be able to say, What's happening between the cracks? And is that some of the most interesting science moving forward? So that's, I think, going to be increasingly the focus moving forward. Again, going back to the fact of this issue of technology, how can we push satellite technology? How can we push small sats to become more capable? Because the more we can bring costs down, the more we can do. And then finally, the third thing is really this issue of partnerships. Um, and when you bring together science and technology and you create innovative partnerships with private sector, with your international partners, again, you're just going to get more science. You're going to get more bang for your taxpayer buck. Great. So what advice would you give someone who's thinking about a career in public service or the sciences? You know, to me, there's there's no greater career than I can think of than, than the one I've done, which is how can I help move this nation's science enterprise forward? Um, we're doing amazing things across this government, whether it's NOAA making us have the most up-to-date weather forecasts, whether it's the work we do at the U.S. Geological Survey, the Department of the Interior, trying to understand how this nation's waterways, how our, how our the geology of this country and how, how it works, um, you know, the Coast Guard, all the different federal agencies that I touch, whether it's working on the oceans, working on the Arctic, you know, I see the incredible dedication of the civil servants across this federal government. And so I always tell everybody, you want a great career where you work hard on the tough problems, come work for the federal government. Ellen, thanks for your time today. But more importantly, I'd like to thank you for your dedicated service to the country. Thank you. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Dr. Ellen Stofan, NASA's chief scientist. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. What is the U.S. Coast Guard's strategic direction? How is the U.S. Coast Guard modernizing to be ready for today and prepared for tomorrow? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and more with Admiral Paul Zakunft, Commandant United States Coast Guard. Tune in on Mondays at 11 a.m. for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m.